This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, December 16th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Impeachment seems like a done deal. The entire House is to vote Wednesday. The Senate is to take it from there. And unless something really weird happens, like Mitt Romney gets a crisis of conscience that spreads like Ebola within his caucus, Trump will be acquitted. He will then, mark my words, conflate acquittal with exoneration, send out some fundraising letters on that point, and then prominent Democrats noting that he sent out fundraising letters on that point will send out their own counter fundraising letters and a vote that is likely to be 99% or more along party lines will do nothing in so much as cement the power of partisanship. And partisanship does run amok. Oh, yes, it does. Today in the New York Times, veteran Watergate reporter Elizabeth Drew notes, the impeachment process is barely functioning, hyperpartisan politics, and an implacable president may break Congress's ability to check him. The current proceedings, Elizabeth Drew writes, have demonstrated how fragile the Constitution's impeachment clause is. The idea of the clause was to hold the president accountable for misdeeds between elections, but it's now clearer than ever that it doesn't work very well in the context of a very partisan political atmosphere. I am now going to offer you a counter-argument. But first, the caveats. Here come the caveats. We all love the caveats. Cue the caveats theme. Okay, we have no caveats theme. But anyway, here are the caveats. Yes, this impeachment is and will continue to be partisan. Just as the impeachment and acquittal of Bill Clinton was almost entirely, but not entirely partisan, but almost. And yes, the founders did not foresee political parties. They're bad. They should have. And yeah, partisanship has many damaging effects. And furthermore, the arguments of one of the sides in this partisan divide are really rather poor. Here is, for instance, Ted Cruz on ABC's This Week. And this is trying to undermine an election. And it's why it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. It's not going to go anywhere in the Senate because the facts don't back them up. You heard No, that is not why it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. But the reason that it won't go anywhere in the Senate is not partisanship per se. It might look like it because all the Republicans will vote to acquit Trump, but that's not really why he'll be acquitted. It is not a perversion of democracy that he will be acquitted. It is not the founders' vision being inadequate for this moment. The reason that impeachment is not going anywhere in the Senate is the requirement that conviction be by a two-thirds vote. And yeah, sure, I'll allow, I guess is a caveat too. Here come the caveats. Sure, I will allow that partisanship as a whole has perhaps perverted us and perverted the media and perhaps even confused and addled some of the followers of some of the partisans. But my point is this. If you require conviction by two-thirds of the elected officials tasked with conviction or acquittal, and you do, that is the requirement, there is no fair representative way to assemble a body of elected officials where you would get a two-thirds vote for conviction. It is not a failure of the process. It is a precise carrying out of the process that you will get an acquittal in the Senate because you can't, again, you can't get a body of people representing all Americans where two-thirds of them think the president should be acquitted. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's annoying. Yes, it is annoying, but it's just the fact. More than a third of Americans think the president should not be convicted. 
the elected officials representing at least those third of Americans are going to be able to vote to acquit. And yeah, I know that the Senate wasn't even designed to originally be representative, not even directly elected. And I also know that those changes were seen as, and in fact, were progressive. But the Senate will vote not guilty because more than a third of the people want their senators to vote not guilty. That may be immoral, illiberal, ignorant, or unfair. It is just not undemocratic. On the show today, I will spiel about Greta Thunberg, though that is not precisely how to pronounce her name. I will spiel about one aspect of what makes her such a compelling figure. But first, the Supreme Court recently heard their first big gun case in years, and the justices were not happy. Not with guns, not with gun control, with the fact that since the case got to them, the state whose law that they were checking in on changed the actual law. Now, if you read a lot of analysis about that case, it was centered on the idea that the case might go nowhere because it was mooted by New York State. But my guest was there, and he said, a lot of observers are getting this wrong. This case portends a big setback for the forces of gun control. It offers a glimpse onto where the justices want to take gun rights. And that is a place of, he worries, more guns, not fewer. Jonathan Metzl, author of Dying of Whiteness, is here to talk about guns and the court. The Supreme Court recently heard the case New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. City of New York. I'd I back the side with guns, right? Well, it's a little complicated because it's not even clear that the Supreme Court will be ruling on anything because the city actually changed the law after this case was brought The Supreme Courts I grew up with would just say that's not good enough for a huge precedent. But this was the first big guns case of any distinction to come to the court in about a decade. Jonathan Metzl, who is a professor at Vanderbilt University who wrote Dying of Whiteness, was down there talking to people who are passionate about guns. He's done a lot of research into the harm done by guns. And um, he just did. I just wanted to brief him. Smart guy, past just guest. Let's see what he learned. Hello. Thanks for coming in, Jonathan. It's great to be back. So what was your intention going down to, you know, monitor the case and the people around it? I've been doing gun policy work for quite some time. As we talked about the last time I was here, I'm the research director of an organization called the Safe Tennessee Project, which is a bipartisan, basically a bipartisan organization in Tennessee that looks at how can we create smart gun policy. Mm-hmm. So I've been monitoring this case for a long time, uh, in part because so much of contemporary gun policy emanates not from activism, not from grassroots, not from elections, but from courts. And so the fact that the Supreme Court picked up a case like this was something that immediately got my attention. And I've written a couple of pieces about the case. Uh, I wrote a piece in the New York Times about the implications for New York. And so I've been also following it from a scholarly perspective. But I think more than anything, I also went down there just to kind of get a sense of what a Supreme Court gun case feels like because we haven't had one in about 10 years. Since McDonald? Well, you know, McDonald and Heller before that. So it's been a while. I think wisely avoided what seems to be coming down the pike now. Now, on this show, I've talked laudatorily about my city's gun laws, and they're reflected in v, the city of New York part. And it used to be the case that you could own a gun in New York. I mean, some people say you just can't own a gun, but you can only transport it to one of seven 
gun ranges in the city. And in fact, if you own that gun, you couldn't even take it in a locked case out of the city to say your country home. Now they change the law and you can. I don't know that we need to go that far. And I don't think that we could go that far in, say, Tennessee in terms of passing gun laws. But was that essentially what was on the docket? Was the Supreme Court weighing in on could other cities, if they want to, adopt New York's gun laws? Well, I think it's important to note that there were two levels of what was happening in this Supreme Court case. Level one, which was the overt level, was nothing was happening. And the reason nothing was happening is because the Supreme Court took a case based on an arcane law from New York that, as you suggest, was basically like, could guys who own guns privately and had tested, you know, had the right to own those guns, could they take those guns to their second home? Could they take those guns to shooting ranges? And New York had a law that was basically, you can take it as long as you basically <laughs> disassemble it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know. Right, this, right. If this, it wasn't a gun. If, if it was it gun parts. Right. Yeah. It's like, here, here's some parts or something like that. And so this was a kind of silly law. And three or four random people basically said, hey, this is a violation, and it got picked up. And so when this case started to go through the courts, first a court and a court of appeals locally said, yes, the New York is in its Second Amendment rights to basically have a law like this. But when the Supreme Court took it up, basically everybody was like, well, it's not worth the fight for this such a small thing. And so they basically overturned it. And now those guys can take their guns anywhere they want in the context of this case. That's one level. For those guys, those five guys yeah. taking your guns to your country. House. And so that's why yes. part of the argument, a lot of the argument at the Supreme Court was about what's called mootness because it's like, why should we be having this conversation at all? So point number one okay. is the so plaintiff- point one was about mootness, yeah. but let's get to point two about uh, shootness. Uh, right. <laughs> well, mootness, let me just say, yeah. is that the plaintiffs got everything they wanted. They won. Yeah. And so that's important to note so the fact that the Supreme Court still took the case, even after all this, I think is leads into point two, which is a bigger question about can you carry guns in public? Who can carry guns in public? Where can you carry guns in public? And this leads back to something called the Heller decision in 2008, which basically said an individual has a right to own guns in their home, but states and towns and cities like New York or Los Angeles have a right to regulate where people can carry guns. Mm -hmm. And that has led to a, basically the modern gun control movement. In other words, saying, yes, People can have a gun at home, but we can, you know, you can't carry a gun in school. You can't carry a gun on the subway or things like that. And New York is the poster child for what I feel like are effective gun laws. So, well, don't say it with feel. I mean, <laughs> what the facts show are effective yeah. gun laws. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's exactly right. That yeah. is for a city this size, with this density, with this level of kind of different people running around and abutting each other all the time, this is exactly what you want. In an ideal universe, you would say, what's working in New York? Mm -hmm. And let's take that to places where there are high rates of gun death. Instead, yeah. what the Supreme Court basically said is we're willing to consider a case from a city that has markedly effective gun laws. And what that is, is really on a shot across the bow, that they're willing to consider a bigger story, which is, should we expand what are called Heller rights? Heller rights are basically not just does somebody have a right to own a gun in the house, but does the Constitution regulate and basically say that you can also carry a gun in public, which would overturn the city and state gun laws in a place like New York, which say you can't carry a gun on a subway or you can't carry a gun around into this building mm -hmm. and things like that. And so what was at stake was a much bigger question, a first salvo and a much bigger question, which is, 
is basically the right to concealed carry a loaded firearm, is that something a state or a city can regulate or is it a national right? And I think that's a huge question because it has implications not just for New York, but really for the entire country and the gun control movement as we know it. If it is the case that there are some forms of firearms that can be banned, and this isn't much debated, I mean, on the fringes, maybe someone will argue you can own a tank or you can own anti-artillery shells or you can own a fully automatic machine gun. So if it's the case that some guns can be banned and still not be in violation of the Second Amendment, how do you make the case that principle stops at this kind of gun or that kind of gun or that instance of owning a gun? I mean, th- that's really one of the things that, that's up for debate. And, you know, I, I would just say that there, for, especially for this argument, right, there, my sense is that there are a lot of people in the center. I mean, I think the majority of the country probably would respect the Second Amendment, but before background checks and red flag laws and assault weapons bans, that's probably most people. But on the fringes of this argument, there are people who are trying to overturn the Hughes Amendment that regulates if you can have a machine gun or not. There are people. And so the minute this becomes a safety issue, which is, I think, what they're saying, the question is really, does carrying a gun make you safer or does it make a community or society less safe? And I really think that that's the issue. The other, I think, inconsistency here are what are called gun-free zones, right? And so a faction of this is against having a gun-free zone, which is why we can now have guns in schools and campus carry and things like that. But what about a military base where people can't carry weapons? What about on an airplane or when you go hear the president talk or things like that? So there are all of these inconsistencies in this logic. And I think on the best side, you might be able to say, well, here's what the Supreme Court's trying to iron out is like, how can we have some national mm-hmm. standards for this kind of thing? That would be a, a kind reading. But I also think it's also about expanding Heller rights into the public sphere that really we're in for a much bigger controversy. If it is the case that, you know, you've demonstrated a gun and other people have demonstrated that a gun in the home does increase the chances of an innocent person in that home dying via gun Mostly that gun. What about the, there's not great statistics on it, but what about the concealed carry laws? Has that led to an increase in shooting? Anyone who tells you anything about gun demographic data is probably, ultimately, we don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the reason is because there's a congressional ban, effectively, on doing large-scale gun research, and we don't have the kind of databases that we need to assess some of these issues. And so I think the first answer is... I don't know. But in general, I would say that I've yet to see a study that doesn't link more guns with more shootings. So more guns in the home lead to more shu- more suicides and partner violence in the home. The question of... I guess I'm asking a slightly different question. Yeah. If we had the same number of guns, but you were allowed to have concealed carry, either by there are different ways to adjudicate that by permit, not by permit. Is there evidence? Is there empirical evidence there is that ev- it's bad? Yeah. <laughs> there is evidence that anything... Basically, I'd say that the data trend in social science research is basically the more guns you introduce into a space, the more shootings are going to be in that space. And mm-hmm. so there are laws that link stand your ground laws with more shooting. There are laws that link concealed carry in particular arenas into studies more shootings. that show. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so studies, no, yeah. certainly I, I would say that that's the case, that the more guns. And so the bigger question is, are shootings, you know, it's basically what do shootings represent? Is it people defending themselves against intruders? Is it accidental shootings? Is it partner violence? You know, the research that I do shows that actually a very, very small percentage of that is protecting your family against a carjacker, which is what a lot of the advertisements and NRA wants you to think. Right. M- most shooting is a 
you know, suicide or accidental shooting or things like that. But I would say the, the answer basically to your question is yes. It also seems to me this if, if those basic facts are hard to get a hold of, it seems uh, especially hard to answer a question like this. But there might be a threshold where there are so many guns in a society that it leads to not just more guns, more death, but it leads to an argument that actually you should have concealed carry gun. It leads to an argument. Like if I were to argue in New York City, yeah, concealed carry is a good idea. It would be a terrible argument because most other people don't have guns. If I were to make that same argument, or if my friend from Dallas were to make that argument, I might say, actually, you might have more of a point because there are a lot of guns out there and defense by gun becomes more logical with a lot of guns. And then you get to this case, the case of the uh, mistaken identity of the uh, off-duty Dallas police officer who shot the man who she thought was in her home. Maybe if that's a New York City off-duty police officer, because he is either by training or just by feeling the environment, he's not expecting to encounter someone with a gun. In Dallas, you are expecting, and it is more logical to expect that to be someone with a gun. I have no idea how to study that, but these are things that just feel like they should be true. No, and, and I think they are true in a certain kind of way. In other words, part of the reason why New York has been effective, reasonably effective in this sense, is because there's a pretty good chance that you don't have a gun and the next guy, the next person doesn't have a gun. And right. I, I think that that really creates a certain kind of social engagement, cohesion, factors like that. Um, the minute one person gets a gun and you're on the subway, you want to have a gun also. And yeah. so what that does is it foments markets, right? The NRA is a is a marketing, it's a gun manufacturer's organization. So what they're trying to do is tap markets. And I think that it's really that mistrust. If you look at a lot of gun advertisements, you know, now there's a push toward women owning guns, for example, you know, because it could be Cute date, pink guns. date, date yeah. rape yeah. and stuff like that. There was a push for a while ago. They hired a guy named Colin Noir to do a, you know, the police aren't going to protect you. So you need a gun. It's all about yeah. markets, right? And the minute New York and LA become markets, if, you know, if your neighbor has a gun, you're going to need a gun. And so I think that's really what's at stake here is keeping a particular version of New York that we have, which is a low gun, relatively low gun death, more neighborly version. Or do we want to become much more like a southern city where there are more guns and more shootings? I agree. And in fact, it's not entirely... The implications of this, by the way, hasn't always led me to liberal or progressive policies. For instance, I talked to Emily Bazelon, who wrote a book about diversionary programs, and part of it was New York City does punish very harshly people with a gun, non people without criminal records who are just found to have a gun. And she argued that there should be more diversionary programs. We should be more lenient. You don't understand the mindset of a young kid in the inner city who thinks he might need a gun for protection. And I said, but in New York, we do. That that is a lot illogical feeling most of the time because we have such low gun crimes. It's less legitimate than in Philadelphia to argue I only needed the gun for protection. Anyway, that's maybe not the most liberal policy to take, but that's one I take. No, but but I, I think that's important to think about, right? There's a bigger question, which is how does the presence of a gun change social interactions when it's not being fired? How does that change issues like diversity and city planning and, and factors like that? So I think these are bigger questions, not just about death data, right. but really about what kind, of, what kind of society we want. And the other thing I think that's important that we know from past experience is the minute you get guns into a place, it's very hard to get them out, right? So it's better to have policies in in the front side. Yeah. You know, like no matter what our ideal gun policies are, 
we're very much hemmed in by what the gun reality is. Like, we're not doing a buyback of a couple hundred million guns, are we? Like, that's not going, handguns, that's not going to happen. We have more than one gun per citizen in this country. Right. Like, we could want to be Japan. It's not going to happen. So let's not try to craft a policy that aims to be Japan. And the place where guns are regulated. I mean, this is really what the post-Sandy Hook, post-Heller 2008 modern gun control movement have been built on, is that it's a balancing act, right? I think really for me, the gun control movement is miscast by the right as a, I want to grab your gun. That's Uh not what it is. It's basically a balancing act between respecting gun rights and thinking about public space and public safety, right? And so the whole modern gun control movement is not saying, I'm going to grab your guns. It's basically saying in particular public settings, you can't carry a gun or you can't carry a particular kind of gun because, you know, that there's a broader issue of public safety. And I really think that's what's at stake in this Supreme Court case. Is there, and I talked to a professor about this once, is there a better way, a kinder way, a way that might break through to communicate, we don't want to grab your guns? Because everyone who advocates for gun control says it and they're never believed. So what's the point of saying it or is there a different way to say it? Well, I think, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out because, of course, the minute that the I'm going to call it the gun control side. Really, it's the gun violence prevention side. But the minute the gun control side changes the language, then the other side changes the language to pathologize that. And so mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, it's it's much a fight about rhetoric as it is about anything else. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Metzl, professor at Vanderbilt University, is the author of Dying of Whiteness. He's been down there in Washington studying the gun issue. Thank you. Thank you for coming loaded for Ben. Thanks so much. <laughs> And now the spiel. Time person of the year, Greta Thunberg, you know her. She wears a pale pink hoodie. Her head is Donald Trump. She has come in for a lot of unhinged, cruel, stupid criticism. And I have to say, among the stupidest is the Trump campaign putting the president's head on this 16-year-old girl's body. It just befuddles all my preconceived notions of structural integrity. Usually, when it comes to persons of the year designations... I keep my powder dry, but now I shall weigh in. And I did, in fact, over the weekend, weigh in critically. And I want to weigh in critically. Not critically as in the sense of criticizing or flaw-finding or picking apart, but offer a limited critical analysis. I was thinking about why people are thinking about her, why Time Magazine would name her Person of the Year, why Time Magazine thinks that newsstand sales will benefit from naming her person of the year, why people find her compelling, why my son finds her a hero. And so I was thinking about this. I did it on Twitter, and I was called problematic. I was not exactly called a pedophile, but I was said to be using the tools of pedophilia. I do not think this is the case, though I defer to Twitter on such issues. Now, what I don't want to do is my most hated genre where a podcast host angrily lashes out at his Twitter critics because podcast audiences and Twitter audiences are really different audiences. One lends itself to a deeper contemplation of consideration of the issue. The other thinks it's funny to change your name to a Santa pun, which is, by the way, how Chris Kringle did it. 
So here's my thesis, and it's this. Greta Thunberg is a captivating communicator. This seems obvious. This is why she captured the person of the year designation. It is not an honor. It is a designation. Realize this. Trump won it in 2016. Greta is compelling, captivating, charismatic for a number of reasons. Among them, she speaks well. She speaks starkly. She has the facts at her disposal. She does not try to win her audience over with conventional charm. Also, she speaks rather softly. It's not a scream, even when she is thundering. It's more like a sustained, steady rain. Here, listen to her. So there it is again. This is my message. This is what I want you to focus on. So please tell me, how do you react to these numbers without feeling at least some level of panic? How do you respond to the fact that basically nothing is being done about this without feeling the slightest bit of anger? And how do you communicate this without sounding alarmist? I would really like to know. Okay, so along with all those things and subject area knowledge and an engaging speaking style and an unflinching way of not letting the audience off the hook, there is another aspect to Greta Thunberg's ability to attract interest and to hold the public's attention. And this is true, especially because most people have experienced her via television or online video. It is, of course, how she looks, how a person looks and forms other people's opinions of them. And my observation is that Greta Thunberg looks young. This is because Greta Thunberg is, in fact, young. She is going to be 17 in less than three weeks. But I think she looks even younger than that. And because of the visual of the young girl speaking truth to power, that power being older, almost always male, it's striking. She is a prodigy. And the more of a child that she seems to be, the more prodigious she also seems. I was, I made this observation, which people called creepy, but I found this observation is not particularly novel. I guess you could say maybe there are a lot of creeps out there. For instance, Robinson Meyer, who covers climate change for The Atlantic, writes, It is always at least a little uncomfortable to see a young person become an icon. It robs them of the privacy of growing up. But Thunberg is an especially flummoxing figure. She looks younger than her years, yet her speeches take a shaming, authoritative tone. In another Atlantic article titled Greta Thunberg is Right to Panic, Franklin Four writes, when Thunberg addressed panels at the United Nations and lectured European parliaments, the inversion of roles was striking. The child, she looks younger than 16, has assumed the authoritative posture of the adult. The Agence France Presse's Nina Larson writes, Thunberg, with her small stature and round cheeks, looks younger than 16. The Financial Times concurs. They use the proper Swedish pronunciation of Thunberg's surname. Thunberg is slightly hard to spot because she is so little, less than five feet tall. And my favorite was Zoe Weil in Psychology Today. She lists some bullet points explaining Thunberg's potency. One, she's heroic and her integrity is her superpower. Two, she is unique. Three, Greta is young and looks younger. Zoe Will, by the way, has given six TED Talks, is the recipient of the Unity College Women in Environmental Leadership Award, and is the author of The World Becomes What We Teach, Educating a Generation of Solutionaires. CNN points to Greta Thunberg as being a solutionaire, a little solutionary, or a little solutionary. Tiny, soft-spoken Swede. I am here to say our house is on fire. But if you want a really diminishing observation, check out this one. She has actually read 
the dense, depressing warnings of the IPCC reports. Yeah, really. An expert on the subject really reads the reports. Okay, maybe now you're saying, Mike, you've proved your case two or three times over. The reason I go to such lengths is that my observation that she's particularly young looking was met with resistance. I guess it comes with the territory whenever a man in his 40s says anything about the appearance of a teenage girl. I got the male gaze charge, the you're being problematic thing, the sexualizing teenagers idea, and the general accusation of creepiness. To demonstrate that Thunberg did appear younger than 16, appear as subjective, I tried to get empirical. I used that Microsoft app where you give it a photo of a person and it estimates the age. It turns out different pictures of Thunberg scan, according to this app, as 6, 11, and 13. I've used this app with my family many times. But one helpful Twitter user said that this service must exist as an aid to pedophiles. How would this work? Wait, forget I asked. The reason that it's legitimate to know Thunberg's appearance is not to diminish her power, but to analyze where the power comes from. If it is legitimate to write articles discussing the semiotics of Nancy Pelosi's white pantsuits, and it is, then value can be gained from considering Thunberg's words, actions, comportment, speaking style, appearance, tactics, and affect. Greta Thunberg is an icon. Being named Time's Person of the Year solidifies her iconic status. Iconography is interesting, and it is useful to examine what parts of iconography have a hold on us. Unlike Nancy Pelosi, or New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern, or to a large extent AOC, we are not interested in Greta Thunberg because she has power. She has power because we are interested in her. And why are we interested? Lots of reasons. But one is, like I said, she's an icon, a symbol, a living embodiment of what devastation our policies are leaving for the children. A child shall lead us, and in this case, a child will shame us. And the more these withering lessons and critiques seem like they are coming from a child who seems very much like a child, the more potency the critiques have. I mean, today, this is the day after the conference of the parties, the COP25, broke down over, among other factors, the Trump administration's obstructionism. It is of value to examine all the ways we have of communicating an important lesson to the world and to ourselves. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader and Christina DeJosa, who are younger than they look cumulatively, but I am unwilling to break that down on a producer-by-producer basis. They are really spry and youthful, collectively speaking. The Gist, a five-and-three-quarters-year-old podcast, but we do have the reading level of an eight-year-old vlog. Umpuru, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>